so sorry not to be in person with you this Sunday morning. It's actually Saturday evening uh, right now, and I thank you to the crew that's helping me video this. I've been a little sick over the last couple days, and um, I just, I woke up this morning knowing that it just wasn't going to happen to be with you on Sunday morning. So uh, rallying to put this together, and I just want to say good morning. I have have several things to say as we open today. Today's going to be so much fun. And oh, I just wish I would, was, was able to be with you. Uh, but first of all, I want, to, I want to bring some words of thanks for several things, just real quick. First of all, thinking back earlier in the summer, thank you to everybody who came to the Concert of Prayer and have been praying for our summer outreach events. Uh, prayer is what makes it all work. And uh, we started off with that. And then next is thank you who, uh, to everyone who ran all of those summer outreach events. First of all, the camp out. Thank you guys for running that. It was so much fun. And then all the people who set up the worship in the gym. And then all the people who invited um, the neighborhoods to soccer camp. And then all the people who ran soccer camp. It was amazing. Uh, There's so much more that could be said. Then all who worked so hard to pull off the outdoor service last week at Central Park. Wasn't that just so much fun? That That was one of the super highlights of the summer. And how many people were there? I know I almost everybody. Raise your hand if you were there. It was so good. And congratulations to the, uh, the three who were baptized. Got a little picture of that uh, out in Central, um, in Center Lake Park. That was, that was a real special moment, and God was proclaimed and glorified. Thank you, finally, for all who worked so hard on our worship center renovations. Don't they look so, so good? Uh, I'm, I was so, so happy when I walked in uh, tonight and saw them. It's just, they were uh, striking and just awesome. So praise God for all he's doing. He is alive, and we are following him wherever he leads us. And here's a note from Jan Salzgiver, who oversaw the meals for all these events this summer. Here's what she writes. With the three events, there were 42 different volunteers, 42 different, vo- different volunteers involved in serving. What fun to see them enjoying serving others. Some of them could not get enough of it as they really enjoyed the opportunity, plus they met others from the body that they did not know. This is an item to celebrate. Hallelujah to God. So thankful for his provision. And hallelujah indeed. Let's praise him together. Let's praise him together right now. I'm clapping in a room by myself. But can you all join me? Just saying thank you, God, for this summer. It's been great. Well, I'm in in a quiet room again. The first time this has happened since, oh, I don't know, COVID lockdown. Uh, Those aren't the fondest of memories, but God is working always, always. He's always sovereign on the throne. Let's see where he's taking us today together. We're kicking off a brand new sermon series today. It's a mission-related sermon series, one of the most exciting things in the world. It's called Sent to All Nations. I'm so excited about this because we, as Christ followers, need, obviously, to be on his mission. His mission. And we get to focus on that for the next seven weeks. And I hope you absolutely fall in love with God's mission over these weeks. I'll tell you how how that develops. God gave me a love for himself when I was a youth. And then in my 20s, God gave me a love for his church and called me into it, into serving him. Then as I grew, that naturally grew into a love for Jesus' mission for his church to make disciples 
of all nations. As our sign says there, the Great Commission, which is now on this side of the room. Pretty fun. Of course, that grew into a love for missionaries, and then that grew into a love for mission strategies, and that grew into a love for praying for the mission, and that grew into a love for mobilizing all of my brothers and sisters in Christ to be involved in the way that God made you in his mission. And so that's a deep love of mine is to get everybody aware of how they fit into Jesus' great commission to reach all the nations whom he loves and be active in it, yielding the benefits for it. And what are the benefits? What could be better than joining God's mission? What could be better than joining God's mission to, here's the benefits, to bring glory to God, to bring freedom to the people of the world, and to bring spiritual growth and joy for ourselves. What could be better? Nothing. Nothing could be better than those things. We have the greatest mission in the world. Better than any army, better than any sports team, better than any superhero. We have the best mission in the world. And all of this comes from knowing and following God's word, the authority of our lives, the love letter from God himself, particularly, which we'll explore these seven weeks, how the mission of God is at the core of every part, every part of the Bible. The mission of God is is there at its core. And so we're kicking it all off today with a big, giant overview of the Bible. And as you see from the sermon title today, which is God's overarching, all-embracing story of love for all nations. This is going to be a lot of fun. Now, I have admitted something to you before, I remember, uh, and that is that I grew up in a pretty strong Christian home, and it wasn't until I was in college that I realized all 66 books of the Bible are actually connected. I didn't even realize that until I had been a believer for a a long time. And so I hope that today, if that's you, you realize, oh yeah, they're, they're all connected. Old Testament, New Testament, these books written over a span of 1,500 years on four different continents, and they're all perfectly connected to one big story. That's why if you were here during our Exodus series uh, much of this year, I made this point often that all the parts of Exodus are not little individual stories. They're one story, parts of the story, and we are still living in this story today. God's moving the world to freedom. All the world. How much of the world? How much of the world is he moving to freedom? Look at this thing. Jay Bell bought me this, so I have to use it. Uh, He's moving all of the world to freedom. That's a story that is still going on, still unfolding, and that God has called each and every one of us who call Jesus our Lord to be part of that story, his plan of redemption for the world. But along the way, like in my journey, there are gaps of knowledge, gaps of understanding. We have misunderstandings, all kinds of them, about God, about his plan, about right and wrong and ethics and how the world works and what the purposes are. So let's look at some of those misunderstandings 
as we launch this series today. Here's just a few of them. And maybe you've been influenced by some of these or can think of others. These are common biblical misunderstandings. Here's just a few. One is the Bible is kind of like green beans and plain oatmeal. The Bible's kind of like green beans and plain oatmeal, and God is the nutritionist. Listen to this. We spend time with the Bible and with God primarily because it's good for us, not because we delight in him. And that's sad. Maybe that's where you are today. The second is common misunderstanding. God in the Old Testament was pretty mean, and he's gotten nicer with time. Maybe you don't realize just how common that is. Third, God's first plan didn't work so well, so now he's trying something else. The church is plan B. Oh no, the church is plan A, and there is no plan B. And fourth, our destiny is to sit in the clouds all wearing the same boring clothing. It's not exciting, but it's better than the alternative. And oh no, eternity, the new heaven, the new earth, creation will be our greatest adventure, more perfect and amazing than I have time to explain right now. These are some of the pressing misunderstandings about the Bible. Let's set out to get some of those things right and really grasp at the outset of this sermon series some deep truths and understandings about who we are, who God's called us to be, why he has saved us and called us to be his church. Imagine what our life will continue to be like and what our legacy that we leave will be if we let all these misunderstandings that just aren't true about God and his word and our lives just overtake us and dictate our lives. It would be very, very sad. So let's have good, good biblical knowledge and understanding. The first thing we're going to do to set off to do to achieve that is to look at the Bible's overarching, embracing story, which is called the meta narrative. And I want to make sure that you know this word because it's important. The Bible has a meta narrative. Yes, again, there there seem to be many stories in the Bible, many many stories, but in reality, it's one meta narrative, one story. The word narrative is the word for story. And the word meta is for overarching. There's one story. Yeah, it's filled with millions of different parts to it. And we're still living that now. But there's one big story. And this is so helpful for us to know why in the world we're even here. This right here. It's the story of God's creation, God's purpose, God's love, God's plan for all the nations of the world and bringing salvation to all of them. Notice how God's big story contains the element of any good story. We all like a good story. Every movie you watch, every show, every book that you read, whether long or short, here are the four basic parts of any story. I want you to connect with with God's reality of the universe here that we're a part of. Okay, what are the four basic parts of any story? First, the stage is set. There's always a setting. The stage is set. When you open a book or a story or turn on a TV show, the, the setting and starting context, the idealistic world is there. 
the who and the where, they're all introduced, the stage is set. In the Bible, that is done in Genesis 1 and 2, the two chapters that account for God's creation of the world. Okay, and then the second part of the story is a crisis takes place. A crisis takes place. An, emer- an enemy emerges, a significant problem develops and starts continuing and getting worse and worse. And indeed, God's story, that's the fall of mankind into sin in Genesis 3. This is the original ultimate story. This is how all other stories, this is why all other stories are based this way. Because this is reality. There's something in the heart of man that sees this. Well, number three is that the plot develops. And as the plot develops, heroes appear, characters develop, rising actions and complications emerge. The heroes persevere. Conflict comes to a climax and then gets resolved. And in the Bible, it's all of the Bible from Genesis 3 through the last two chapters of Revelation. All of it. And we are still living in the midst of that story right now. The events of Revelation have not happened yet. So this is the story. The plot is developing. The heroes and characters are appearing, and they're you and me. And the enemies are still at large, and the work and the mission is still to be accomplished. The fourth part of any story is the ending resolution. In God's story, it is the restoration, the new creation, and that's beautifully described in Revelation 21 and 22, the end of our Bible, God's word, when we see a picture of the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, we look forward to that. So that's the four basic parts of any story. That's what we live in. Now, how does the meta-narrative, this big story, relate to all the other smaller stories and genres of the Bible. I want us to be able to grasp our Bibles here. And this picture of a tree that you see here is very helpful. Only about 40% of the Bible is story form, called narrative. Okay? And, but here's how that works. Like branches growing off of the trunk of a tree, the non-narrative parts of the Bible all find their context and meaning from the trunk, from the core story. There's that overarching story And then you have all these offshoots, all the law and the covenants and the descriptions and the prophecies, all the other genres, the other 60% of the Bible. They all find their meaning and connection to the trunk, to the core meta-narrative of the story. They're all connected, teaching us parts about God and ourselves and our reality and his plan and our part in it. It's fascinating. Okay, the Bible's larger story gives essential context to the smaller stories, which must be placed in the larger story in order to properly understand each individual part. So you're studying in your Bible study um, just any part of the Bible. How can you come to full understanding of it? you got to put it in the context of the whole Bible. So kids, as you're learning individual stories, know this, that we're all still living. We're one of those stories, you and me, right now. We're all a part of this. We have to understand what God has invited us to be a part of. His plan for the whole universe, for the whole world. I mean, this is what he calls us to be a part of. So let's just take a quick look with the time we have remaining today at the beginning, the center, and the end 
of the story. And I want to draw out a few things about each of those three. First, let me ask, why is there so much pain, so much suffering, and so much death in the world? And why isn't God doing something about it? And we cry out to God all the time. There is so much pain and death and suffering in the world. And why isn't God doing something about it? And the answer is, he is. And he has been for a very, very long time. Something big. He's been working his plan through all of them for a long time. It just may be hard to see from this little perspective that we have here, the big things he's doing in the world. For instance, have you ever tried starting to read a novel at chapter 6? Probably not. I would imagine you have not tried to start reading a novel in chapter 6. Because with that limited perspective, you just wouldn't understand what's going on in the world. How can you possibly understand all these things that you're facing right now and that everybody around you is facing and the the current events that are just so chaotic and wild? But the thing about the Bible is we can start at the beginning and see the middle and see the end. And now we can have God's perspective on things as he's revealed it in his word. The whole world makes so much more sense. So looking at the beginning of the story, just real quick, I want to point out just a few scriptures that help us understand the world and our place in it. Turn your attention first to Genesis 1 through 12. And if you have your sermon notes, you see a a small outline of the first 12 chapters of Genesis. We know how the Bible begins. God creates everything. He creates a world without sin He describes it as being very good. Here we are at the beginning of the story. Creation, very good. That's the setting of the story. Then, of course, we all know what happened. Adam and Eve chose to sin. And it's at this moment in Genesis chapter 3 that God gives us the first glimpse in the Bible of his redemptive plan, the plan for the salvation of the universe what the universe is all about. Check this out. Genesis 3, 14, and 15, we find the Proto-Evangelium. That's on your notes. That's Greek for the first gospel. This is right in the third chapter of the Bible. We have the first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this. Here we are in the events of chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, listen to this, I will put, he's talking to the serpent, devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring, and her offspring. That's Jesus, that's all mankind. And then he, Jesus, shall bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See three things here with this first prophecy of the gospel. First is the promise of a Savior. The promise of a Savior. He tells them that the human woman, Eve, would produce an offspring in her line. And though Satan would bruise his heel, that's at the crucifixion. And he thought he won that day. But through the crucifixion and then the resurrection... He will crush the head of the serpent. 
And that's exactly how the story unfolds. That's the beginning. The second thing we see there is that this promise extends to all of Adam and Eve's offspring. All, there's, so there's a global aspect to it. It's all the world. It's all the world, all the nations of the world, including us that praise God right now. And then third, God's promise has a forward trajectory to it, not backwards. He's not trying to return us to Eden. We're going forward. He's taking us to a much better place. This is how the, the story the big overarching story begins. Now, where does that trajectory take us next in the book of Genesis? Open your Bibles or your Bible apps, starting in Genesis 3, and get ready to flip pages forward a little bit. Okay, we're just going to look at just the chapter titles and kind of the contents of what's in the next chapters. The next chapters, Genesis 3 through 9, as you're scanning through those, those chapters show us how bad humans get when left on our own. You see the fall into sin, and then you see the first two boys kill each other. Well, Cain kills his brother Abel. I mean, he murders him, and then plunges further into sin as the human race. Then you come to Adam's genealogy all the way to Noah, which demonstrates that apart from God, they did not live with a significant relationship with God in that time. So apart from God, we have a natural trajectory towards what? To holiness? No. No, 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 no. Our human nature takes us on a downward trajectory to evil, which you see described in Genesis 6, 5. Here's where we go, left on our own, left without God, every single one of us, because we're all humans. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was on only evil all the time. It's crazy. Let's just acknowledge that about ourselves. So God takes the only righteous man and family on earth and saves them from the flood in the ark, which itself is a picture of Jesus. And that's Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And then flip to Genesis 10. And what do you see there? Genesis 10 tells us about their offspring, Noah's families and their kids' families' offspring. Genesis 10 is entirely genealogy. How many of you all have, have read the book of Genesis? Raise your hand. Look around. Okay, now admit how many of you have kind of skipped when you get to the genealogy parts. Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah, and that's totally okay as you're reading the Bible. I skim or sometimes skip through it as well. But never miss the importance of each genealogy section. Never miss the importance. Let's see the importance of Genesis 10. It's extremely important. This is called the Table of Nations. And if you look in your Bibles, that's probably what it says at the top of chapter 10. The Table of Nations. This is where all... Listen to this. This is extremely important for us to know. This right here, we've got to know this. This right here is where all the nations and people groups that are on the earth today, this is where they came from. Right here. So here they are. After the flood, many years go by, and there's people groups, nations, lots of them. And then in the next two chapters, 
chapters 11 and 12. Keep with me now. This is huge to unlocking the entire story of the universe. The next two chapters are a tale of two different redemption stories, redemption plans. Chapter 11 is man's redemption plan. Chapter 12, uh, chapter 12 is God's redemption plan. Let's look at those really quickly. Chapter 11, man's redemptive plan is when the peoples come together to build the Tower of Babel that reaches to the sky. And it's not, it doesn't matter how high it got. As a kid, you think, well, they thought they were going to get all the way to heaven. I don't know. That's, that doesn't really seem realistic. No, it's not about the height of this tower. It's about the heart of what they're doing. And you'll see that's exactly what humans have been doing ever since. This is just the first account of it. So the people come together to build the Tower of Babel for what purpose? What exactly were they doing and why were they doing it? Chapter 11, verse 4 gives us the answers. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And here's where God picks up on this and explains to us what they're doing and that we continue to do this too as humans. So listen to this. To make, our name, to make a name for ourselves lest we become weak. What they were doing was attempting to do what the human nature always wants to do and that is get ourselves free from God. Free from the need of God. It's called autonomy. To be autonomous from God because we want to be our own gods. The human heart, flesh, and nature wants to be its own God. Does not like authority. How many of you as kids grew up just loving authority? How about adults? Do you just love your bosses at work all the time? We rebel against authority. We want to be independent. We want to be our own people and our own gods. And so as a society, we amass central power whether that's government structures or medical structures or educational structures, we try to mass central powers to take care of all of our needs, all the social programs. We don't need God. We don't need the church. We don't need our family. We don't need anything else. We've got our medicine. We've got our education. We've got our jobs. We don't need God. I can worship myself. This is what happens. This is what every empire that's ever risen in all of human history has focused on. And it's what the nation of Israel sadly focused on for the majority of their history as well. And frankly, it's what a lot of churches focus on as well. We build our own kingdoms instead of falling in unity and love for each other no matter what, under the headship of Christ. Churches do it all the time. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, is just the first account of when it first happened. So, what did God do in reply? He scattered the nations and confused their language. That was an act of mercy. So he didn't have to destroy them too. And that is where the different languages have come from. Why do we have so many people groups scattering the world? Why do we, why do we have so many cultures and languages? This is where they come from. This is where they began. 
And do you see how this is at the beginning of the story of God's plan to redeem and bring salvation to the whole world? They started then. They've scattered over the generations since then. They're all over the place. And Jesus gives his people the mission to bring salvation to them through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We're going to study some of that in a little bit more detail next week. Um, And that'll be enjoyable. But for now, know this. That was man's attempt at a redemption plan. Like I said, chapter 12 is God's redemption plan when it kicks off, when it begins. And this gets good. And this is the plan we're still functioning under today. So as you look at chapter 12 now in your Bibles, you see that it begins with God calling a man named Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And he comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to expand on this promise that I gave in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And here's what he says to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And listen to this. And in you, all the families, all the families or peoples or nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, notice some contrast in the two redemption plans. In the first case, people's motivation was their glory. In the second plan, God is making Abraham's name great for God's glory. God loves people and provides infinitely better solutions for them. His plan is global. The trajectory is still going forward to something new, and it still is today. His plan extends to a diversity of people groups, which it still does today. And so we celebrate the rich diversity of cultures in the world and skin colors and languages and experiences and perspectives and personalities and nuances. We here, Hoosiers in the 21st century, we need to appreciate and celebrate and value all these different historical and cultural and ethnic perspectives because that's how God sees the world. This is his plan. This is the mission that he's called us to be on, to seek and save all that are lost, all of them, all of them, all of them. Every single one of them where God gives us influence. Well, that brings us to the middle of the story, the middle of the story again from where the bulk of Scripture was written in which we're still living in right now. And what's it all about? And I just want to cut right to the chase and make this very simple. It's all about Jesus. That's the message that all of the Old Testament and all the New Testament tells us, that it's, God has made it all about the Messiah, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the creator and who is the answer, the redeemer and friend, the giver of new life, the forgiver of sins, the sacrifice for our sins. He is the fulfillment of everything that came before him in the Old Testament. He is the foundation for everything that comes after him in the New Testament and in our day today, all the way to the ends of the earth and in heaven for eternity, Jesus. It reminds me of when Jesus, after his resurrection, was walk, came walking alongside those two guys on the road to Emmaus. You might remember the story. And they were talking about all the things that just happened with that guy, Jesus, in town. And he walks alongside of them. And 
here's what it says in Luke 24, 27. He wants to tell these guys and explain how all that they were talking about, the Old Testament, was all about him. He said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He explained how every story in the Old Testament and every prophecy and every law pointed to him. And Jesus told them that every page of God's word pointed to him, and he was the fulfiller of it all, and the purpose, and the commissioner of us, and the head of the church, and everything. And I want to play a video from you for you right now. This is all I'm going to say about the middle of the story. This is pretty exciting. Uh, this is a video, a short video of a kid in a church a few years ago who got this right very well. And he knew before I did that all 66 books of the Bible are connected by something. Let's enjoy this four-minute video together. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of the broken down walls of human life. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, he is our righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in life's fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger of beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's way. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist crying, Revive thy works in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain opened up in the house of David for sin and uncleanliness. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. Mark is the servant, and Luke is the son of man, feeling what you feel, and John is the son of God, and Acts he is the savior of the world, and Romans he is the righteousness of God, and 1 Corinthians he is the rock followed his earth, and 2 Corinthians he is the triumphant one, giving victory, and Galatians he is your liberty, he set you free, and Ephesians he is the head of the church, and Philippians he is your joy, and Colossians he is your completeness. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he is your hope. In 1st Timothy, he is your faith. In 2nd Timothy, he is your stability. In Philemon, he is your benefactor. In Titus, he is truth. In Hebrews, he is your perfection. In James, he is the power behind your faith. In 1st Peter, he is your example. In 2nd Peter, he is your purity. In 1st John, he is your life. In 2nd John, he is your pattern. In 3rd John, he is your motivation. In Jude, he is the foundation of your faith. In Revelation, he is your coming king. He is the first and the last, beginning and the end. He is the keeper of creation, the creator of all. 
He's the architect of the universe and the manager of all time. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. Unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced and he's pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He is risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand him. The armies can't defeat him. Schools can't explain him and the leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. Pharisees couldn't confuse him. The people couldn't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler couldn't silence him. The New Age can't replace him. And Oprah can't explain him away. He is life, love, longevity, and more. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness, and God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. His ways are right. His word is eternal. His will is unchanging, and his mind is on me. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my guide. He is my peace. He is my joy. He is my comfort. He is my Lord, and he rules my life. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that enjoyable? Jesus, the middle of the story, the purpose of the story, the end of the story, the beginning of the story. Let's talk about the end of the story. Like I said, this story is still ongoing and hasn't ended yet, but because we have the Bible, we see what it's going to look like. We see a lot about it. God's plan has never failed, and so as he has graciously given us a look in Revelation at what it's going to look like at the end when everything is finished, when our mission in this world is finished, uh, we would expect to see the same elements in the finish that we saw in the beginning, and that is God's love for all the peoples of the world and his rescue of all of them by using us. And so let's see if we indeed see those details in the end. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 is just one of several passages that show us a glimpse into the future, toward the end, the fulfillment of all time. And let's see what we see here. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. God gives a vision of the revelation to the apostle John, and this is what part of what he sees. He says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with one loud voice together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus. And I can't wait to be there. What a powerful moment that's going to be. That's what eternity is going to be filled with that kind of thing and a lot of other things. But here we saw, indeed, every, here's the fulfillment, every tribe, tongue, people group, nation, all there celebrating and worshiping Jesus. Notice that there is no loss of cultural identity. We don't all just become homogenous and look the same and speak the same. No, we recognize the diversity among us all, and yet we're singing praise to God, united in one voice. This, this church is how we should be right now. In our hearts, 
is a myopic worldview. That means very just narrow. In our hearts, there's a distrust of people who look and, and, and act differently than us. But God calls us to mature past those things, to embrace all the diversity of the world as our brothers and sisters and an urgent need uh, to proclaim the gospel to all the peoples of the world. Here in Warsaw, it's filled with people from different cultures who are different from us. And God is calling us. He has saved us and calling us to look at them the way he looks at them with love. Oh, this is exciting. And as we grow in this kind of maturity, oh man, it's just exhilarating. So rich for us, so glorifying to God and so helpful to the people who haven't heard about Jesus yet and the freedom and eternal life that he gives. That is the mission of God. Why he's saved us. We're just one people group among many that the gospel has come to, praise him. Can we go on now? And start preparing ourselves for a seven-week process and challenge to be sent to all nations of the world, to love them like God does, to grow ourselves in these same ways. This is going to be a great sermon series. I'm so glad we get to start it today. Two next steps today. First is to, here's the challenge. This is what you need to start preparing or recommit your lives to. Make Jesus' great commission your life's mission. We've got a lot of other missions in life that constantly take the place as our number one mission in life over Jesus' great commission. I just want to charge you to reclaim the place of Jesus' great commission for your life as your number one mission. Look, look I'm going to go out and I'm, I'm going to be so filled with the gospel that it can't help but come out in my conversation, the good news of Jesus and who he is to me and what he's done for me in the world and what I believe about the Bible. Where do we begin? It begins right here in our home in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our school, in our community, that's where it begins. And anywhere else in the world, God gives us influence on the internet or where we go or where we have business partners overseas or wherever it is where we support missionaries. God already made you a part of his mission. So today, make it your number one mission. Number two then is what we need to do together and that's to make Jesus' great commission our church's mission. Every church faces the temptation to drift into other missions, to be comfortable, to have fun, to exclude other people that we don't like. And we got to fight against those temptations. Jesus' great commission is the mission of every small group, every ministry. Every ministry in our church needs to have an evangelism element to it as well, how we can bring the gospel to the world. And then as the church all together is one, and we're going to move in major ways in that area. We're going to grow in this area. We've got a lot of growing to do. So here's a couple challenges. Attend all six weeks of the sermon series and be open to the Holy Spirit's leading for our church and for you or watch them online. If you can't gather with us, you will not be sorry. And then our small groups and other ministries are starting up again next month. And right now, we, I'm sure every ministry could use a few uh, volunteers. So would you prepare to volunteer, to serve in ministries? And I'm going to put a call out for small group leaders, co-leaders, and hosts to get everybody into a small group this fall. Uh, we need a few more of those. Small group leaders like to be contacted about. Will you just put that on your communication card uh, that you would like to be contacted about any of those roles? How can you get involved in the church as we are involved in Jesus' mission? And then finally, I want to announce our plan for Wednesday nights this fall, starting this fall. 
This campus is full of children's ministries and youth ministry going on on Wednesday nights, but we're going to add two more things, and I want to invite all of you to consider being a part. As you can see, on the first and third Wednesdays, we're going to have a prayer gathering every first and third Wednesday night. That's the engine of the church. That's what powers us up. And I can't wait, and I hope that a lot of people come for that every first and third. And then on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month, that's where Jay Bell, who we've just hired as our Great Commission consultant, he's also on staff at Lakeland Christian Academy, uh, an amazing man and leader, and he's going to lead an open group into a mission strategizing group going through the book Antioch Revisited. And that's every second and fourth Wednesday. We'll talk more about that and give you um, all the uh, opportunities to sign up for those things. But I just want to cast that vision right now and encourage you and even challenge you to be a part of some of these things as we go forward as a church family. Let me close in prayer and we'll uh, continue our day of worship. Lord God, I'm, I'm wiped and um, my voice is already gone, but I am pumped. I'm pumped. I trust my health will return. And I've already given, I had a lot of time just worshiping you, talking to you, reading your word in the last couple days. And I'm always thankful for that opportunity uh, when we're sick or down uh, to be forced to turn to you. And and it's been good. Um, So Lord, I just pray right now on behalf of this entire church family that we will rise up, be filled Put away the childish things and the evil things and the things we, the Egypt we used to turn to and look totally to Christ, put on Christ, follow and pursue his mission, your love, your forgiveness, the pure heart that you give us. I pray that you'll unite us today as a church family for the purpose of this mission. We pray for the nations among us. We pray for the, now that for the people who we will be able to meet and talk to about Jesus and share our faith with, even now that you'll give us eyes to see those Uh, divine appointments that are ahead. Lord, do your greatest work in us and through us, we pray. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.